Hey, if you notice, uh, on, on Sunday mornings now, our oldest class of kids, they're going to come out and worship with us and then go back into their room um, so that they can get some teaching on their own level. Um, not that I can't speak to 12-year-olds, uh, but anyway. So yeah, so if you're a parent and you have kids in that oldest class, just know that they're going to be out here on Sunday mornings. Uh, they get to sing and do all of that, and then they go back to their class. So it was super neat to stand up there and see a whole row of kids, man. That's, that's really, really, really cool. Um, yeah, we're back, by the way. Welcome back. It's good to see everybody. The last time we were here, there were no Christmas decorations on Christmas Day, um, and now they're back. So I don't know if this is going to stay up for the rest of the year or not. It's not our call, but either way, it adds some lighting and some ambiance. so um, really cool to hear. Man, a couple things. We wanted to give some updates uh, really quick, um, but they're pretty big updates. I don't know if you can do a drum roll, but last month we had our first ever kind of Christmas give campaign. Like, we've never done that. We said that uh, on top of what we normally give, like if you can't do that and you can only give to one thing, give to the Christmas Give campaign. We understand, and we were going to take that at the end of that time and split it four ways equally amongst um, Piedmont Women's Center, Set Free Alliance, and uh, help me, I'm struggling so bad today, I don't know why, the Guatemala Mission Trip, um, and then Arbor Way Community Church in Boston, which is a church plant that we support. Okay, and so when we start, it was kind of like Christmas Day. Like we thought Christmas Day, we'd probably have 24 to 28 and a half people. That's what we were guessing. And there were like 70. Okay, so that was pretty crazy. Uh, so it was great. The first time ever that we've gotten to do a Christmas service on Christmas Day. And so that was a ton of fun. In 11 years, when it happens again, we'll do it again. And we look forward to seeing you then. So you got a little bit of a time to prepare something like that. There's leap years and all this kind of stuff. Don't mess with math because I don't understand it. Um, so, but... The Christmas gift campaign was pretty similar. Like, we had no, we just didn't have any benchmarks or standards. We were like, we don't know what it'll be, but we know at the end of that time, we're going to split it four ways, and, and we're going to give it away. And so, like, just to give you a little bit of context, our monthly budget going into this year, like, with a lot of things that we're adding, like, we're, we're renovating a space, we're about to have office multi-use space just a couple blocks down the road, all that kind of stuff. Like, our, our monthly is going to be about $20,000 which that's pretty high-speed, low-drag for, for a church that does what we do. Pretty awesome. Um, so just let me, let me just tell you a couple things. Like money, I, we don't talk about money a whole lot. Like we just ask people to give regularly, sacrificially, joyfully, and we appreciate it. The Christmas Give Campaign, you guys gave $22,138.12. $22,000! $22,000! That's crazy! $22,000, that's more than our monthly budget that we've got, that we've set this year that's quite auspicious and like, you know, pretty much a reach. Like, that's crazy. Last year, our operating budget was like $15,000, $16,000. You gave like, man, $6,000 over that. That's insane. And so we get to split that four ways, and it comes out to like $5,534 each. Like, we get to give a check to Piedmont Women's Center for $5,500. We give them money every month, but it's not like that, but $5,500. Set Free Alliance, I can't remember how many kids that's going to sponsor for a whole year, but I did the math. It was like a dozen kids. Like, we get to sponsor 12 kids set free from slavery in India for the next year. That's insane. In one month. In one month. Thank you so much. Um, and we did make a statement. said, look, if you can only afford to give to this and not to the general operating budget, that's fine. The general operating budget was hit and exceeded last month by almost $20,000. Pretty, pretty nuts. And so, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving. Thank you for being generous. 
Um, we want you to know where every penny goes, and we'll be glad to share that. In a couple weeks, we're going to put the budget for this year out so you can look at that and know where that's going. But um, we are going to let our people know as soon as we give them this check. Understand, we're, we're not a big church. Like we've, you know, this is a good, great crowd today, and we got a bunch of kids back there, so we're running probably about 120 people, full total bodies in here today. And so that's awesome. $22,000 on top of a budget that was exceeded by almost $20,000. Crazy, crazy. Thank you so much, and thank you for allowing us to be generous um, and give to kingdom work. So anyway, all right, so after that, let's, let's jump into Mark. Um, again, thank you guys so much for doing that. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44 today. And I'll go ahead and tell you, like these three particular passages, um, they're not super connected. We're going to connect them. We're not going to make a stretch. We're not going to do anything called eisegesis, which is reading into Scripture. That's bad. Anytime someone does eisegesis, you should say, boo. But we're not doing that, okay? But they are, they're connected because of the context of what's going on in this particular place. And so since about a chapter ago, or about 48 hours in Jesus' time, uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He's marching to the cross uh, to lay his life down on our behalf in obedience to God, sacrificially, because we couldn't do it for ourselves. But in the meantime, between entering Jerusalem and ending up on the cross and then rising on the third day, like he spent time teaching. Like he had a few days left, and he's going to spend time just man teaching. And the way that he's going to do it is, is he's basically going to do a majority of it, and we're going to see this today, in the temple. That's where people gathered for their religious life uh, to be monotheistic in nature, to worship the one true God, yet they didn't know Christ his son, whom he had sent yet, but he was going to gather in the temple and teach. And in this particular place, he's going to give like three quick kind of hit lessons for us. They sound like they probably lasted five minutes as we read them. They probably took a little bit longer. They were probably in response to some things that he had heard, and he was answering some questions. But we're going to look at these three today um, to cover them, to try to cover all three of them. Um, and we're going to try to connect the dots a little bit too. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm excited to be back and, and worship today. I don't know if you can tell, but like last week, it was great to have a, a Sunday just kind of it was. It was weird. It was weird. Like, we got up on Sunday morning, and we were in Beach Mountain. We took the kids tubing for Christmas. And, uh, but it was just like, man, what day is it? It just seemed like there wasn't even a landmark for the week. I was lost this entire week. I thought it was Thursday when it was Tuesday. I thought it was Friday when it was Monday. I'm like, what is going on? It was because we missed this. And so we're super glad to be back today. So uh, I'm going to pray again, and then um, we're going to jump in and read this text. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us. Um, we thank you for guiding us in your word. We thank you for guiding us in a life in pursuit of you. Um, God, we thank you so much for Jesus today. Uh, we thank you that through his uh, very nature, being God himself, did not consider himself equal, but generally loosed himself of his rights of divinity so that we could be made right with you. God, thank you for him. Thank you for his, his message. Thank you for his methods. Thank you for his heart that we got to see on display. And thank you for the fact that you came and walked among us in the form of Jesus. Uh, we love you today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to go ahead and read chapter 12, verses 35, uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 44, and then we'll, we'll kind of break these apart a little bit. It said in verse 35, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he the son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Verse 38, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation. Verse 41, And he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so three distinctly different passages that uh, probably could be taught in a week each. Uh, but today we want to connect them because of the context of what Jesus is doing. Jesus has a little bit of time left uh, before he goes to the cross. And he's still doing his very best to reach out to people, to draw them in, to reveal to them who he is and what life can look like through him and him alone. And so we start in 35 through 37, uh, and he addresses a question that we've kind of already dug into a little bit when we saw Bartimaeus, who was blind, the beggar sitting on the roadside, and he called out to Jesus in an odd way. He called him, son of David, have mercy on me. And apparently the question had been going around, circulating around, and they had been calling Jesus the son of David, which is uh, has its origins and its roots in the Old Testament, but it was never really a phrase, even in Hebrew in the Old Testament or in Aramaic, but it was kind of an understanding. Uh, if we go back to Nathan the prophet who served under David, uh, he actually told David in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, he, he kind of declared for him a couple things. And he was like, look, from you, from you, I'm going to bring another king. And this king, his kingdom will have no end. It will not end. And he said a couple other things, but there was like an eternal perspective to the kingdom that was going to come from David. And so we can look at lineage of Jesus. We can look, you know, from his, his earthly father, Joseph, who was pretty much an adoptive father. He could trace his line all the way back to David, but Mary could as well. Now, that it wasn't bad. It was, you know, they were distant, distant cousins, and that was okay back then. But either way, Mary could trace her line all the way back to David, too, from a genetic standpoint, from a, a lineage standpoint, as could David. And so Jesus did come from the line of David. And so there were several other prophets that, that talked about, too, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Hosea. Uh, they all said similar ideas, but Nathan is the one who started it when he was talking to David. Other language would have been like from a shoot of Jesse, or, or from, uh, from the line, or from the family, um, different ideas like that. And, and it became known, like in New Testament times, when Jesus came and people were looking to Jesus as the Messiah, the one that was promised, whose kingdom would have no end, uh, they just kind of called him Son of David. And so in this time, there probably was a bit of confusion. If we go and reread in Matthew, we're going to throw that up there, a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, a few different details says, now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he son? So Jesus, I think in this moment, like this is a confusing passage. It just seems kind of like an island in the midst of things. But I think this was Jesus' way of clarifying some ideas, clearing up some things that were going on. Because people were calling him the son of David, but if he was just a son of David, he couldn't do what he was about to do. He couldn't accomplish what he was about to accomplish. And in Matthew, we get a little bit more of an idea of what's going on because he started it with a question to the Pharisees like, Hey, this, uh, this Christ, what do you think of him? Who is he? And they're like, well, he's a son of David. 
because they were still thinking in very earthly terms, very earth kingdom terms, uh, very much crown related that someone could wear physically, very much tangible ideas. And I think in this small little passage, it seems like an odd place. What Jesus was trying to do was like, okay, that's fine, but you need to understand more than just a son of David, I'm actually the Lord whom David was talking to in this particular place where he's referencing back to Psalm 110, which is one of our messianic prophecies that we find in the book of Psalm. It's actually David who they're saying this Jesus came from. It's actually him praying to the Lord, and Jesus is clarifying by saying, okay, if I'm the son of David, how did David talk to me then? And so basically he's saying, look, yes, from the line of David, that's fine, but you need to understand I'm more than that. I'm more than just a man. I'm more than just someone who a crown is going to rest on my head. I'm more than someone who's going to sit on an earthly throne. I'm more. And kind of the subtext of this idea is I am more and I'm about to do more. They were prepared and they were waiting for this Messiah to come, this deliverer to come, the Christ to come. But yet in this moment, we can see that they were still a bit unclear as to who he would be, what he would look like, and what he would do. And this is Jesus' effort in the beginning before we even get into these other two texts that he's going to teach in the same place for the same reason at the same time to clarify ideas to say, I am way more than you're expecting. I'm going to do more than you thought possible. And through me, you can be more than you've ever been. Way more than you expected. Do more than you expected. You can be more than you ever thought possible. And he's trying to turn their minds away from this idea of very earthly characteristics of a king and draw them to the point that the Messiah, he's not just going to be a political rebellious uh, icon. He's not just going to be someone who sits on a chair made by human hands. He's going to be much more much more. Like we talk about a lot like this, this kingdom nature that we need to adopt and this kingdom ideology that we need to be a part of. And it starts, that all of that starts with worshiping the one true king. We have to know who he is. We have to know what he did. We have to know why he did it. And we have to know how we fit into all of that. But it does all start with knowing who Jesus is. And so Jesus in this moment, we see it in Matthew, we see it in Mark. There's also a similar passage in Luke in which Jesus is just saying, hey, you, you say I'm from David, that's okay. I, I am, in a sense, but I'm also God. If you want to know whose son I am, I'm his son. I'm his son. And so that's our, our first chunk of Scripture. We'll connect these in a minute. The second chunk of Scripture, it goes into verse 38. It says, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive their greater condemnation. And again, a passage on its own, you're like, where, where in the world, Jesus, did that come from? Like, uh, okay, all right. The funny thing is, he's sitting amongst scribes right now. Like, they're around him. They're in the temple right now. He's probably sitting kind of in what would be considered like the second layer of the temple in the next passage. Uh, we'll have a little bit of proof of that. But uh, he's kind of in an area where almost everybody except Gentiles could be. Men, women, Jews. They could, they could all sit right there. And so scribes and Pharisees were right there. They were the religious leaders. We've already seen several things that he's talked about. Remember the withering of the fig tree that we talked about? You know, the fact that people had, had responsibility laid on them to lead the people of Israel, and they had just... They had just done it bad, and Jesus pronounced judgment on them. He's like, look, you're going to cease. 
you know, AD 70, right around then, we see that the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all of those, they disappeared from history. They were gone because they were given responsibility and they squandered it. And now, sitting amongst them, he's like, look out for these people. Look out. Beware. Be on guard. Be on guard. Matthew, again, in Matthew 23, gives us a passage in which he goes into a little more detail, same conversation. It says, And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, that's authority, with also knowledge, so do and observe whatever they tell you, uh, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And so, again, another warning here, and if you continue to read Matthew chapter 23, there's some pretty, pretty scary stuff there that he talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, just warnings and woes that he pronounces them. But he's telling the people sitting there listening and his disciples, he was like, hey, you see these guys, their robes, man, they're amazing. I mean, they are the best-dressed people here, and they want you to know it. They want to be greeted in the marketplace with respect, but they don't offer it back. When they go to a, a feast or a gathering, they want the best seat in the house. And, and even the widows who they've been charged to take care of, they generally take advantage of them. But then they pray so big with multisyllabic words and deep, theologically rich, colorful language. But it's just appeasement. He says, you need to look out for them. Be aware. Beware of them. Jesus is warning the people that the people who were put in place to lead them, that their pride was showing. Their pride was showing. Right on the heels of what he just said a minute ago. Right on the heels of, said, of asking the question and answering the question, who do you think I am? Who, who's my dad? This Jesus, who just chapters previous made a declaration that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, to seek and save the lost. This humble servant, God would skin on like God, God walking among us, yet never asked for praise, never asked for payment, never asked for the seat, never asked for the long flowing robe. He was probably wearing what would be considered a pauper's robe, yet he was a teacher and people called him teacher and rabbi, but he didn't go to school. He wasn't greeted in the marketplace. Instead, he was mocked. This Jesus, who was not just the son of David, but he was actually the son of God, walking among us by comparison to these people, very different, vastly different. And the other interesting thing, he was so vastly different that ultimately what they would see is that he would lay down his very life for the sheep. But these men who were charged to lead, who were charged to teach, says they wouldn't even move a finger to do the things that they were telling others to do. He said, beware of them. Be on guard. These are not the men you should follow. And the beauty of the subtext here is Jesus didn't even have to say that I am the man you should follow. But it was very much implied. But he didn't even have to say it. Whose son am I? Not just David's. I'm God's. 
Look at these men who should, by all regards, be able to lead you. They sit on the seat of Moses. They have the knowledge. They have the calling. They have the position. But beware. Don't trust them. Don't trust them. Their pride is showing. I do love the contrast of the people who had claimed authority versus Jesus who actually had it. The people who claimed authority, they wanted everybody to know. And the way that they, that they chose a way to let people know is they would tell them, I have this authority, it is mine. Follow me, do what I tell you. Jesus just loved. He just restored one person at a time by touch, by word, by presence, by will. They were incredibly prideful. He was completely humble. Like, we, we think about the idea of humility. Humility is making less of yourself, elevating more. Like, think about this. Jesus had to stoop, crawl, slither for almost 30-some-odd years in relation to who he actually was. But for him to come down, put on skin, walk the way he walked, be ridiculed the way he ridiculed, it would be the equivalent of us going through our entire life on our belly, like crawling from one place to another, through the mud, through the muck, through the mire. Jesus did it through our sin. With no fancy robe, no fancy title, no fancy adoration, just Jesus for the sake of those whom he loved and out of obedience to the Father. So vastly different. He says, beware of these men. Their pride is showing. And then more contrast comes. And in verse 41, it says, and he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And, his, and he called his disciples, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, and has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So again, We've got these ideas. Who am I? Whose son am I? Not just David's. I'm, I'm the son of God. Should have all the praise. Should have all the glory. Should have all these things. But these men who, who claim authority over you, you need to beware. Beware. They're, they're not the men to follow. And then he keeps continually flipping things on his end, and now they're definitely in like the second level of the temple because the way the temple worked is you had one wall where everyone could enter to worship God, Jews, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, that's what they would be called, uh, they could worship. Then you had like another level where all Jews could go in, men and women, and then you had another layer where just Jewish men could go. There was a hierarchy back then. And then you had another level where just kind of the high priest could go. So now they're in like that second level place because they're watching a woman uh, drop money into one of the offering boxes. And, and so there were probably uh, 7 to 13 around this area, around the temple, where people could just drop their money for the temple, for the church of its day, to be honest, to use. Uh, to take care of things, to take care of the, the, the pastors of the day, uh, the teachers, the rabbis, to take care of the other ministers, the synagogue rulers, all of those types of things. They had the offering to run on, to pay for all the stuff that would go on, to serve the widows and the orphans, all of that money. And so people would come in, they would worship, and part of their worship is they would drop money. And so Jesus is sitting, watching a woman drop money into one of these boxes, and before she dropped it in, all money was coinage at the time. There was no Venmo, Venmo, there was no cash app, there were no bills. It was all coins. And so imagine the super wealthy person, you know, that has a lot. They come in, it's quite a commotion. 
to drop a bunch of coins in. Because there wasn't like one big coin, you know, this wasn't a $100 coin. I mean, there were a bunch of small coins. And so they would empty a sack into that offering box. We used to have, we call it a booty box, or I call it a booty box. We used to have a treasure box that people would drop offering in. Uh, and checks don't make a whole lot of noise. Dollar bills don't. But you have a bucket of coins, and you drop those in, it's going to be real loud. And so you had those people, those people giving out of their abundance, the leftovers, making a ton of noise, drawing attention to themselves, probably very much the way that the Pharisees and the scribes would have donated their money. Oh, listen to this. You know, that kind of thing, just Scrooge McDuck type money. Remember Scrooge McDuck? Yeah, that's my age right there. He used to swim in his vats of money. I know you guys at the governor's school, you're like, I don't know who you're talking about. DuckTales, woo, woo. Anyway, sorry. Uh, that's me pretending to be tone deaf. And if I did it actually on pitch, you would think I was weird. But either way, like Scrooge McDuck kind of money, like dumping it in, making a huge commotion. But then there was this woman, and she walked in, and it was just, just two little tink, tink. And Jesus, again, he flips things over. He said, she just gave more. And everybody's thinking, no, she didn't. She dropped in two, like, half pennies each. And I watched that guy. He had a whole sack. A whole sack. He said, no, she gave more because it was all she had. Now, the translators say a penny, but they're trying to, to get that point across because it's like the smallest denomination of currency. If, if you really want to know, uh, she dropped in teptas, two teptas, and they would equal one cordantes, which would have been a, a Greek expression of money, and it would have been like one sixty-fourth of a denarius. We're doing a lot of math here. One sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was a day's labor. You know, an average day's labor. You would get paid one denarius for one day honest work for most people. Um, and so she basically dropped in like one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which would have been like 50 cents. Either way. Was that four bits? I don't know. There's a whole lot of things that we could do right now. Um, either way, two coins. Tink, tink, two quarters. All she had, not just all she had, but all she had to live on. He said, she just gave more. She just gave more. Now, this is very much about money, but it's very much about other stuff, too. Very much about money, but very much about other stuff, too. Again, going back to whose son am I? Oh, you're the son of David. Yeah, but David called me Lord because I'm more. Yet I don't act like these other guys who I'm telling you not to follow and then he was like, and I'll tell you what I'm after. I'll tell you what I desire. I desire all of you. Every single bit. Every bit. Here's the kicker. He desired everything because he was about to give everything. Unlike the Pharisees who required much but did nothing, Jesus, again, vastly different. He required of you only what he was willing to give up. Because he looked at her and he said, do you know why she gave more? Because she gave all she had. It is about money, but it's about a whole lot more. The thing that Jesus offers the reason it's so vastly different from the rest of the world and what the world offers is yes, Jesus does say, I don't want you in slices. I don't want 
just your religious life and not your work life. I don't want just your religious life and not your family life. I don't want just part of your heart and not the rest. He's like, no, 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 I, I want it all. I want it all. And the rest of the world would think that was a pretty unfair exchange. But in Jesus' economy, he says, yes, I do want all, but I offer more. I offer more. Sure, I'm asking you to completely give over your life to me, but I promise I'm not just going to take it and lock it away and store it and not do anything with it. No, 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 I'm, I'm going to do amazing things with it. But not for your glory, but for mine. I'm not like the Pharisees at all, and I'm not just like a king that you've ever known. I'm completely other than, completely other than. I don't sit on a normal throne. I don't wear a normal crown. My kingdom, it will never end. And if you're with me, neither, neither will you. So yeah, I am asking for circumstantially, temporarily, all of you. But I offer you all of me in return. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't add up. The math simply does not work. Because the things that I have, have to offer in comparison to what God offers me in return, they're not equal. They're not even close. My minuscule talents, my minuscule passions, my minuscule resources by comparison to God. Like it's nothing. It's not even the two tinks that the woman dropped in. It doesn't even make that much. It's not that. He says, I offer more in return. I offer you eternal life united with God forever that no one can take away. I offer you the eternal riches of the kingdom that I own for my glory, but for you to steward. I offer you joy that does not fade no matter how bad your day has been. I offer you peace in the midst of turmoil. I offer you more. I'm not worth that. And I'll give it away. You're not worth it either. But Jesus, by grace, through mercy, the riches and the abundance of the love that he displayed while here on the cross and even currently now sitting at the right hand of Father, says, yes, you're not worth it, but I'll make you worth it. The economy of God would break any bank. Makes no sense on any day, but it's still entirely true. The Son of God came, walked among us, so that our debt could be wiped away and we could know the one true God and be known by him and make him known. And so we don't have to follow people like the Pharisees and the scribes. We get to follow a Savior who cares, who knows, who loves, who gave all so that we could give all back. Completely different. Completely other than. And on his way to the cross, where he was about to lay it all down publicly, he wanted these people to understand and know who he was what he was about to do, and who we could be in him. So he said, not just David's son, I'm God. And I'm not like these other guys, the ones that I'm telling you to beware of. And all I ask in return for everything I give, which you could never possibly understand, is I just want all of you. All of you. All of you. And I know those terms don't make sense. How do we even begin to say, God, I'm gonna give you all of me. Here's the best advice I can give you and I can give myself. 
one day at a time. One day at a time. God, uh, my day is yours. My passions are yours. My money's yours. My time is yours. Do with it whatever you want today. And then when you go down at night for bed, thank you, God. And the next morning, you get up again. Today, God, my day is yours. My life is yours. My time is yours. My money's yours. Do with it what you want. Go through the day, go to bed, get up, do it the next day. And just each day, that's new. Every single day, it's God's. It's God's. If we look at our life moving forward, the entire expanse of everything that we have ahead, and we say, I gotta give you all of that? Yeah, we do. But if we try to do it in that moment, we're gonna be like, I can't do that. But one day at a time, one day at a time, we can. Just today, each day. I think a few things, other takeaways with this, this selection of, of passages, these three texts. Number one, I do think we need to know what he was trying to get across in the very beginning. Like, we have to know, we have to understand, we have to believe, we have to fully acknowledge Jesus was the Son of God. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a smart man. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a rabbi that dressed differently. No, no, no. He was Jesus, the Christ, the one we had been waiting on, from the line of David, but actually the Son of God, the one David called Lord, that Jesus. We have to know that he is him because it matters. Because you read the book of Acts, which is interesting, a ton of people in the book of Acts, they knew God. They worshiped the one true God, but they had yet to hear about Jesus. And you know the very first thing that the disciples and the teachers of that day had to do? They're like, okay, you know the Father. i got to tell you about the Son. And the moment they heard about the Son, the lights went off, and they were like, oh, it all makes sense now, and salvation came to their home. We have to know Jesus. More than just believing in an almighty power that's in control of all things, we have to know God would skin on Jesus, the Christ who came to die in our place. We must know him. And he's better than any king we can imagine, better than any president we can imagine. He was Jesus, the son of God. We have to know him. The second thing I think is a bit twofold. Uh, Just the same way that he warned them of the scribes and the Pharisees, we have to know who we follow. We don't follow men like this. We don't follow women like this, the scribes, the Pharisees. We don't follow those people. And you say, well, that's, that's not fair. No, no, no. Especially with our religious life, these are not the people to follow. And so I'm going to give you a warning. If, if I or any leader within this church ever starts to look like any of these guys, you leave. Or you call us out on it first. And if we don't repent and change, you leave. I can't say that I'm perfect. I can't say that Andrew's perfect. I can't say that Neil's perfect. I can't say that Zach is perfect. Um, But I can tell you they're not these guys. And if I ever started to look like I know, the the first person to tell me would be one of them. We don't follow people like that. You don't follow people like that. And I think as people who are called to lead, man, we can't be like that. Don't follow those people twofold. We, We can't be like that. And so the way that we do it, number one, like, uh, we want to look at Jesus as the example. Like, I, th- I think pastors are probably guilty of this more than anybody else in our, uh, in our religious society right now. They don't look at Jesus enough and look at the way that he led. They don't look at the fact that he had nothing to call his own. He walked around as a pauper. He never asked for praise. He never asked for any of that stuff. He just did. 
Never in a place of authority, never in a place of position, only in the place of a servant. Man, that, as a pastor, I have to look at that every single day. And there are some days that I flub it. But I need to look at it every day. If you leave here and you go to another church, you look at the pastors and the leadership and you ask, do they look like what I think Jesus should look like according to Scripture? Or are they fake? And the way you answer that question, like this was a, a really popular metaphor that floated around um, years ago. But it was talking about how people that work for the Department of Treasury, the way they're, they're trained to spot counterfeit dollars, uh, they don't look at counterfeit dollars all day long. They look at the original dollar all day long. They know the original. They know what it should look like. So when they see something that it's not supposed to look like, they can recognize it instantly. I thought that that metaphor possibly, you know, was not true. I was like, somebody just made that up. That's not true. Apparently it is. Apparently when you go and work, you know, for them and, and you're trying to spot counterfeits, the way you do it is you study the original over and over and over and over so that when you see something that's not right, you know it's fake. The way you know the person that you should follow, the pastors whom you should follow, the religious leaders that you should follow is you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. He is the original. He is the standard. And if something's off, you know him well enough so that when you see the thing that's off, you know that it's not right. Now, I can't promise you that I'm like Jesus every day. But man, I try. I do. I try. And there are days that I mess up. I'm sure this weekend with my kids, my wife is out of town. She's at a, a pastor's wives conference down in Myrtle Beach. I'm sure that there were times just this weekend that I did not look like Jesus when, when it came to me parenting my children by myself. I probably spent too much time in the basement yesterday. But I try. Look to Jesus. Look to the original so that you know the fakes when they're, real, when they're there. And then I think the last thing Man, this woman's convicting. This little lady who we know nothing about. We don't know if she was a widow. We don't know if she had lost everything in a terrible accident. We just know that she had very little, and she gave every bit of it. I think we do need to ask, hey, God, what would it take tomorrow morning for you just to convict me to say it's all yours? It's all yours. My life my work, my passions, my family, my money, my drive, all of it, all yours. What would it take for you to do that in me? Do it for a day. Then do it the next day. Then do it the next day. See what God does with it. I'm not a big New Year's resolution guy. Not, not my thing, because I feel like January 1st, 2023 was exactly the same as December 31st, 2022, except there's a, a new number attached. That's me. But if you're a New Year's resolution person, or if you just want to set a goal, regardless of what year it is, 1975 or 2023, I think it's an amazing one to say, God, I know you. You know me. Thank you for Jesus. Convict me to give you each day from the beginning. And it may be as simple, seriously, it may be as simple uh, when you sit up. I read a book by Dave Kraft. Um, he was an older guy that, you know, is a big Christian leader, kind of a trainer. And to read it is really, really neat. The book was called Leaders Who Last. And, and he talked about how uh, each morning, as soon as his feet touch the floor, he has this kind of same prayer that he says every day. And he has a similar prayer every night before he goes to bed. And he's older and he gets on his knees right beside his bed, does the whole thing. But basically the beginning was, got to give you everything. I give you everything. And at night, it was like, 
God, thank you. That's it. It may be as simple as as soon as you sit upright in the morning, you put your feet on the floor before you check your email, before you check your Instagram feed, before you check any of that stuff, you just start and just say, God, I know that everything that I have is technically yours. Let me give you today back all of it. Do with it whatever you want. And then at night, at the end of it, you lay down and you say, God, thank you. Next day, do it again. And the next day. Let's just see what happens. A very different king. A very different authority. Jesus was entirely different. And man, I'm glad. Because I've yet to meet, to be honest, I've yet to meet a single person in this life or read a biography. I used to love biographies. I've yet to meet or read about a single person that I would give to them what I want to give to Jesus. And I'm so glad that he's different. I'm so glad that he's other than. I'm so glad that he's supernatural. Maybe for you, just see it, believe it, understand it. Whatever you have, just give it back. Give it back. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that you give us. We thank you for the freedom that you give us in knowing you. Freedom to live uh, away from the eternal effects of sin. Uh, freedom to, to have peace in the midst of chaos. Freedom uh, to experience grace that we didn't deserve. To feel your mercy in the places in which we, we deserve punishment. Um, God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you so much that uh, when we saw him, we saw you. And because we know him, we can know you and be known by you and make you known. Um, God, I pray you speak, you guide us, you draw us to that place to where we do believe that you are exactly who you claim to be. And God, we allow you to be the standard of the people that we follow, the people that we allow to lead us uh, to being more like you. Thank you for being that benchmark. For those of us who are in a place of leadership, God, I pray you convict us to look at you every single day and to ask, are we leading like Jesus? Are we loving like Jesus? Are we serving like Jesus? Thank you for the standard. And God, I pray that you do. You convict us as a people that uh, have called you Lord, uh, who have uh, been ranked among your children. God, I pray that you would convict us to give you everything everything because you've given more. Not so that we can work out a debt, but God, so that we can live in the fullness of your expectations for us and bring you glory for your sake, for your kingdom, and for your good works. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.